If anyone's new here, um, just a quick disclaimer, I'm not the lead pastor here. Uh, Josh Dostel is the pastor of our church. Um, he's out of town today, so he had asked me a few months ago, hey, can you, do you want to preach again in June? And I was like, absolutely. So, um, yeah, he asked, you know, what's been on my heart. And throughout the course of this year, I've been digging into the book of First Peter. It's one of those books where I've, I feel like I never really get to it when I'm always like, oh, I should, you know, read through the New Testament. You know, I get through the Gospels, I get into the book of Acts and Romans, and then I kind of like sputter out as I get into the epistles. It's kind of like when you decide to start the Bible, you know, reading from scratch. You're like, I'm going to start in Genesis, get through Exodus. And then when you get to the Levitical law, you're just like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what they're talking about with like building the temple and sacrifices. Um, so <laughs> the book of First Peter is something I haven't really studied a lot, but like at the start of the year, I just really felt like um, just intrigued, curious about, you know, what the, the, the book is about. So I started digging into it, and it's really good, and I'm really excited to be teaching on the first chapter today. Um, so I just want to encourage you, like, even after today, you know, read through this. It's a really good book, especially with just the chaotic times of the last few years. I really feel like First Peter grounds us as believers into where our hope is supposed to be and how we endure through different seasons and trials. Uh, before we begin, though, I want to just open up with some prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to, I want to thank you for this opportunity to teach from your word today. God, I thank you that we can gather and worship your name. Uh, I thank you that we can just uh, be taught by your Holy Spirit through your word, um, through the different ministries of the, the church body. God, I pray that with this sermon today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working within all of us, in me, in everyone here, and open our eyes. You know, if there are any areas in our life where we have been blinded, um, where we have blinders on to any lies in our heart, any strongholds in our heart that divert our hope to something else in this world rather than your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us today. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work to um, bring about uh, that work of removing those lies and strongholds. And God, that we, as your sons and daughters, would simply yield to that work and be humble and obedient uh, to grow more and more like your son. So God, we just pray for all of this today in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to start in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And he opens up his letter with a greeting to his audience. And, you know, as this has become biblical canon, this audience is now the whole entire church as we read this. So he starts off in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Already in the very first two verses, Peter has unpacked the work of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's unpacked the work of of 
the Trinity in our salvation, right here at the start of the letter. A lot of times we, when we talk about salvation, we tend to talk of it from an earthly reference point. We say things like, you know, believe in Jesus, accepting Jesus into our hearts. And I'm not here to say like any of that's wrong, but what I'm trying to also show here is that Peter is showing the work of salvation from a heavenly reference point. God the Father, being all-knowing, in his foreknowledge has called us. He's justified us as believers. Paul also reinforces this in Romans 8.30. The atonement of our sins was provided for by God the Son, Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, his fulfillment of the law in that life, and then his subsequent death on the cross. And we see that mentioned here in verse 2 when Peter says, uh, to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood that his blood is our atonement of our sins. So, as believers, having belief and faith in this truth of Jesus Christ as our atonement, we then turn aside from our old way of living. We are given new life in Christ, and that is made possible through his resurrection. So this is where God, the Holy Spirit, comes into play now. The Holy Spirit dwells within us in this new life and identity that we have, and he brings about the work of sanctification so that we walk in obedience to our new Lord and no longer obey the calls of our old lords. This is the work of the Trinity in salvation, right here. And Peter wants to establish that as he continues to make his argument throughout chapter 1. So then we continue on into verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse 4, he continues, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the entire work of the Trinity all culminates in praise to God. Because of God's great love and mercy for us, we have been given new life through Jesus' resurrection. And this is the argument Peter wants to make. This is our living hope. This is what we now live for as believers. But we hear this term living hope, and I think sometimes it's easy to just fall into the, the nominal Christian life where it's like, okay, we're going through the days, we're working, we got to take care of kids, or we got to take care of jobs, we got to take care of all these other things, we get to church on Sunday, and we hear this term living hope, and sometimes we don't pause to think, what does this really mean? Like, okay, Jesus has died for my sins, I believe in that, but like, it says we now have a living hope that, you know, we're just living through life with. What does that mean? So I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 20, Paul here is talking and arguing that the resurrection of Jesus did happen, and the results of his resurrection and what that means to us as believers. So starting in verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, being Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is our hope, looking at both 1 Peter 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We are given new life in Christ. And all who are in Christ, both Paul and Peter argue, will receive imperishable, imperishable bodies when Christ returns. Paul continues on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This should call us to rejoice. We see both here in 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter that Christ's fulfillment of the law, his sacrificial death, it provides atonement for our sins. But more importantly, Christ is alive again. It's not just the mere fact that our slate has been wiped clean because Jesus died for our sins. Christ is risen from the dead. We too now walk in newness of life. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. He empowers us to put to death daily the things of our old life, the things of the flesh. But even more important than that, and this is the point I want to make, both Peter and Paul state that God has given us the victory. It is assured. You know, we see in verse 57 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is assuring our salvation through this life. We walk in newness of life, but we also have assurance that we are being preserved. It's all because of God, and this, this should cause us to rejoice. So we go to verse 6 now of 1 Peter. And Peter says, In this you rejoice, in this preservation, in this assurance of our salvation, we rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this we rejoice. We rejoice in this truth. Our inheritance, it is imperishable. It is unfading. Unlike all the things we try to live for in the rest of this world, this will not fade away. And God is guarding it. So if God is guarding it, then we can rejoice that even though we experience sufferings in this short life, 
we know that we can endure. And I want to talk about suffering for a bit, and I don't want to treat this lightly like, oh, you should all just be happy. You know, we see throughout the Bible this idea of rejoicing through suffering. James 1, 2 says, count it all joy when you fall into many trials and temptations, knowing that your faith is being purified. You know, we see it here in 1 Peter. And I don't want to just take this lightly and say that you just need to paint a smile on your face. You know, suffering is real in this world. And although this life is a short blip in all of eternity, suffering can feel like an eternity when we're in the middle of it. Suffering is a part of this life. It's a part of our world which has been broken and marred by sin. Sometimes suffering can be caused by the brokenness and wickedness of other people who seek to do harm. I mean, read the news and you see it all over in every single headline. Sometimes suffering can be brought on by our own immature actions. Sometimes it's just brought on by the natural effects of a broken world. We see it in natural disasters. We see it in the decay of our own bodies. And other times it remains a mystery to us that we are not going to understand in this life. But there is one thing that as Christians we can say confidently. If God is preserving us, then we can endure through the suffering of this life because God will use it to test and refine our faith. Even in this, we can rejoice because there is a purpose through the suffering. This is still a difficult process, so I don't want to just paint it over and just take it lightly. You know, Paul calls us as a church body in Romans 12 to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. So we as believers ought to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ through these difficult moments. We don't just leave them to their own suffering and their own devices. We come alongside, we mourn with them, we spur them on and build them up, reminding each other that God has assured our salvation. So how much greater is our joy then knowing that God is refining us and purifying us, but also how much greater the urgency to bear witness of God's truth and glory to those who don't have this hope? This should spur us on because when we go through suffering, it's going to be tough, but we should come alongside our brothers and sisters and encourage and spur them on to endure through this, knowing that there's a point to it all. But at the same time, the rest of the world does not know there's a purpose to this. They just see it as part of life. And so there's an urgency as well to share this good news with them, to share with them what God has done, what Jesus has provided. As I was Studying this, uh, I was reading a commentary by David Guzik, and I really loved something that he quoted here. As he was talking about verses 6 and 7, he said, Our faith isn't tested because God doesn't know how much or what kind of faith we have. It is tested because often we are ignorant of how much or what kind of faith we have. God's purpose in testing is to display the enduring quality of our faith. So when we have faith that Jesus has saved us, that he is the way to eternal life, 
that faith, it starts off small, like, you know, like a mustard seed Jesus talks about. But through this life we are in, it grows, it becomes more refined, more purified. And God will use the sufferings of this broken world to make it greater so that we continue to praise God and bring glory to him and also bear witness of his glory to the rest of the the world that is lost and without hope. There is purpose to all of this. And I want to also address a couple false narratives in this section here. You know, we, we sometimes hear about things like the prosperity gospel or even the poverty gospel, these types of mindsets that creep into the church. And I want to address them here because we need to look at the Bible holistically. So we must be aware of certain narratives like the prosperity gospel, which at its core states that if we obey God or if we give to the church or if we, you know, do all these things, we will be blessed with health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. But where that falls short is that it overlooks verses like this that clearly say that trials and sufferings are coming, that trials and sufferings will test the genuineness of our faith. So we cannot overlook these verses for that type of gospel. But likewise, we also cannot overlook verses that state that God gives good gifts. You know, in Matthew 6, 11, Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? James 1:17 also says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we have to view the Bible holistically here, that both gifts and suffering are ways in which we can grow as believers and also experience a deeper relationship with God. If we adhere to a prosperity gospel or a poverty gospel, we are resting on the laurels of our wealth or our suffering. And when we rest on the laurels of our wealth or suffering, we reduce the good news to a gospel of self-righteousness because suddenly it becomes, oh, look at me over here. I have this beautiful home and I have all this money stockpiled and it's all because I have followed God. Or we go over here and we're like, oh, I'm just a suffering saint. Look at all I've endured through this time and I am just such a wonderful person for it. And clearly that person over there with the big house is not as mature as I am because they would be suffering if they were real authentic in their faith. But what those narratives say is it takes the glory away from God and it puts it on man saying, look what I've done. Look how good I am. That is a gospel of self-righteousness. That is not the good news. And so we need to look at the Bible holistically. Once again, God loves to give good gifts. But we also live in a broken world where there is suffering and God has promised that he will use all things for the good of those whom he has called. And so there is this duality here in which we have good seasons of life and troublesome seasons of life, but God is using both for us as believers to continue to draw us near to him, to refine us, to purify us, to help us grow and become more mature. And so we cannot strip away half the Bible in order to follow our prosperity gospel over here or in order to follow our poverty gospel over here. 
We must look at the Bible as a whole and understand what God is doing. So it's at this point where we see Peter's argument of all that God has done, what Jesus has provided, and what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life. And it's at this point where we might start wondering, well, gee, it seems like God's doing all the work. Clearly, something must be expected of me. Like, I've got to earn my keep here. I've got to keep up my end of the deal. And that's a very valid and humbling thought. (laughs) Our culture we live in, we value hard work. We value earning our keep. We value the idea of um, what we have gained, we have gained through our own merit, through our own hard work. And sometimes there's this uneasy, this feeling lingering in the back of our minds that says, well, I've got to do something to earn my salvation. Like, I've got, I've got to work for it. But this is the beauty of the gospel. It's not dependent on our merit. Because if it was, we would all fall short of God's glory from the very first time we have been disobedient. And so the real question here isn't how do we earn salvation or how do we earn God's love or how do we, you know, keep up our end of the bargain. I think the real question here then is, okay, so knowing what God's done for us and accepting that, what can we do now? And it's in verse 13 where I want to lay out the application of this sermon. So verse 13 After Paul has made all of his arguments, he then says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the point he wants to drive home. That if God has already done all of this for us, that if God has called us, he has justified us, the Holy Spirit is bringing about sanctification in our life, then what we must do is set our hope fully, not partially, fully. Set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the end. In order to do that, though, I I believe there are some prerequisites here. You know, Peter lays out two steps that we must do in order to get to a point where our hope is fully on Christ. The first thing he says is prepare your minds for action. And so that is the first thing we must do is prepare our minds. I think too many times it's easy to just get into routine in this life. And I get it. This life is crazy busy, you know. In our culture, we we love the hustling grind. We value the hustling grind of like, oh, well, if you can just work a little bit more, if you can just put a little bit more effort into your work. And, you know, we love the hustle and grind of like making sure the house looks nice and, you know, our families are well taken care of. And we just keep hustling and hustling and hustling. And the thing, though, is that too many times that gets us into just going through the motions of culture. And that is not an active mindset. That's a passive mindset. 
Because what happens is we just, we wake up, we grab our coffee, we grab our breakfast, we head to work, we go to work, we then have a lunch break. We then keep working in the afternoon, we drive home, we get home, we take care of kids, we mow the lawn, we got to make meals, we've got to food prep, or we got to go to the gym, or we got to do all these other things. And then we get to the end of the day and it's like, oh, okay, let's just relax, let's put on some TV, or I'm going to read a book, or I'm going to take a walk. And we just keep doing this day after day after day. But when we just go through the motions of that, we aren't preparing our minds for action. We're just living passively by what the world expects of us. And it's difficult. It really is. Like, it's easy to be up here and be like, oh, it's Sunday. Like, we're going to go to church. We're going to learn. I'm going to feel so inspired. And then Monday morning starts. And it's just we fall back into that routine. So Peter is exhorting us here to prepare our minds for action. Do that every day. Prepare your mind Monday morning, Tuesday morning. You're going to probably have to prepare your mind again like in two hours after you did it the first time. Like, but it's a constant mindset of being active and aware of what this life is truly about. And likewise, within you know, these different mindsets. We talk about the passivity of just going through the motions of culture. I think there's also another mindset in which we try to overly control everything. We go around anxiously deliberating about, you know, our finances or our family or, you know, our career planning and all these things. And within our spheres of influence, we try to be able to control every little facet and pull all the strings. And even in that, we're not preparing our minds for action. We must yield to God. We must submit. And that is where a prepared mindset begins, through submission to God each and every day. And another thing, too, I want to address when we talk about the prepared mindset is the idea of misplaced identities. In Romans 6.4 and also in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul states, we are new creations in Christ. We have been given a newness of life. So as new creations, we must prepare our minds to live out of that identity. If we don't live out of that identity as new creations in Christ, we become susceptible to try to live out of the mindset of our culture, whether it's a generational view or a social status view or a political view or something. And then we start to place our identity into those things, and we start living like that identity tells us to. You know, we start to place our identity into things like what our achievements are, what our social status is. We put it in our identity into our career. We put it into our sexuality. There's so many different things we put our identity into. All of that must be submitted, though, to our Lord, Jesus Christ, in order to live in the way that he's called us. We need to turn aside from living for these, these little lords in our life and live for our ultimate Lord. You know, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, a lot of times people say, well, I'm not a religious type or I don't do this or I don't do that. But the fact of the matter is that we all have some worldview and within that worldview there is a Lord in our life that we bow down to. And so as believers we are called to cast aside the old way of living, to cast aside living for the lords of this earth, and to live for our Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him. And this is applicable to every believer, 
whether you're 10 years old or 100, whether you make $10,000 a year or a million, whether you're living in a small apartment or a large house, every single believer, because of this new life we've been given, because of this identity, we have purpose, we have mission in this life. So prepare, let us prepare our minds for action. The second step to having hope fully on Christ is sober-mindedness. You know, and we typically think sober, we're like, oh, well, that just means not drunk with alcohol. But I want to dig into the use of this word. Um, When we look in the Greek translation of this word, we see it has a deeper meaning. So the Greek word for sober-minded is nepho, which when translated into the KJV version means to be sober or to watch. And there's two other uses of this word in the book of 1 Peter. In verse 4-7, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He continues into chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So based on these verses, we see the call to remain watchful or vigilant. Therefore, we are called to abstain from all forms of drunkenness. And when I say drunkenness, I'm arguing for any kind of distraction that hinders us from walking in the Spirit, that attempts to steal away our hope. So, that can be anything for us. Like, I'm not going to create this black and white system of like, okay, like, everybody adhere to my view right here. Because we all struggle with different things. For some people, it might be a type of escapist mindset. Oh, if I can just go over to Disney World, if I can just get one more vacation, if I can just get into the woods for a weekend and just get away from everything. Oh, if I can just watch another TV show and binge for another hour. Oh, if I can just get that next video game. If I can just get that next book. You know, and we try to escape into all these forms of leisure, these hobbies, these vacations. But that escapist mindset can turn into drunkenness if it takes our eyes off of Christ and we start putting our hope in this idea of rest that we've earned in this world. Another form of drunkenness might be the anxiety of trying to control everything in our life. Okay, I'm, I'm just graduating from high school. I need to get a college resume out. I need to get, you know, admitted into one of these great colleges so I can pursue my career. And, well, we all know that college resumes, like, oh, they love to see all this volunteer work, so I'm going to go volunteer over here. Not because I actually want to help people. I just want it to look good on my resume. And then I'm going to get through all this stuff. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to then buy a house, get married, and do all these things. And then, oh, man, we have kids, and I need to make sure that they look great like everybody else on Instagram. So I'm going to have to do all these things to shine them up and make my family look pretty. And I got to, like, make my house look awesome because, oh, well, everybody's in love with this new trend so let me get this involved in my house and we start just like anxiously controlling everything our finances our house our family our career choice everything and it becomes this thing where in our brains it just circles and circles and circles and if we live like that that is also drunkenness because we have taken our eyes off of the gospel we have taken our eyes off of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ because we start putting our hope into things like our vacation or we start putting it into our homes Be sober-minded. Now, I don't want to create a pendulum swing where everybody quits their jobs and burns down their homes and gets off of Instagram and all that stuff. 
I'm not saying these things are in and of themselves wrong. But (laughs) we need to be wise with the resources God has given us. We need to steward well the things that he has given us. We should grow in maturity and responsibility as we consider things like starting a family or as we look into our career. We should be responsible with that. We should give our minds and bodies rest by taking breaks from work or maybe taking a nap or going on a vacation. But it can also be way too easy to start being ruled by these passions of the flesh to the point where we are no longer vigilant of our own faith. And that is the fine line we must walk, empowered by the Spirit. So I, my call here, when it comes to sober-mindedness, is not to throw everything out. My call here, though, is to bring all things into submission to Christ. Now, that's going to look different for all of us. For some people, it might be a, a complete removal of something whether that is um, your television. For other people, it might be a complete reorientation of that thing, where they view their job differently and they see it as a kingdom-minded resource rather than an earthly um, resource of theirs. All things must be brought into submission to Christ so that we can live with this sober-minded view of the hope we have at the end of all things. So, preparing our minds for action, and be sober-minded. Peter makes his point. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, we've worked on getting an active, vigilant mindset. Now we're ready for this next step. You know, and I love just like, this is 13 verses, and Peter has packed so much truth into all of it. He's laid out this beautiful foundation of our salvation in the opening verses. I mean, in just like 10 verses, he's already laid out his entire argument of our salvation. We're told that we're being preserved, that we are being guarded by God's power, and that our faith is also being tested and purified through trials and suffering in this life. And so therefore, ultimately, we are called to endure And we are given the promise that God will guard us and the inheritance given to us. But if we want to endure this life well, we must do so with our eyes completely on the prize. And so that is the point that Peter gets to here. And that is what I want to encourage every single one of us here, myself included. You know, I can speak this confidently up here, but I can tell you that I wrestle with this every single day. We must get our eyes off of the false hopes and the false idols in this world and get our eyes on Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this before. We talk about it in Hebrews 12 of running the race and casting aside all weights and burdens that slow us down. And here we see a similar example of having our hope fully on Christ. And so what I want to do now, I want to take a moment and ask all of us to reflect here. Are we living with false hopes in our lives? Those sources of hope can be anything. It could be our wealth, our retirement account, the career that provides that wealth. It could be our family and the need for love. It could be the way our home looks or having this image of like how holidays and 
future generations and grandchildren and all that stuff are going to like all be present in our home that we've built. You know, it might be health and fitness and trying to like take care of our body and do all these awesome things with it. It might be leisure and comfort, trying to find hope in those things. It could even be our politics and putting all of our hope into the government. And so I want to encourage us all here. What are those false hopes in our lives? Because here's the thing, you know, the rest of the world will tell you to put your hope in that stuff. And from that comes a resulting lifestyle. So if you put your hope into something like health and fitness, all of a sudden, everything you're doing is revolved around that. You know, you're meticulously meal prepping and, you know, trying to make sure that you're taking care of every little thing in your body and you're watching your macros and your micronutrients and you're getting to the gym or going running or whatever you do and you're constantly examining yourself in the mirror or you're constantly weighing yourself or taking all these different body measurements, all these different metrics. But when, where that hope gets derailed is what happens if, despite all of that, you still get cancer? What happens if, despite all of that, you still get a heart attack? What happens if you could be like, I don't know, Mr. Universe or Olympia or whatever they have, and then you suffer some sort of muscle, muscular degenerative disorder where your muscles just atrophy right before your eyes? Our hope becomes derailed when all that leaves us. What about leisure and comfort? Oh, if I can just get another slice of pizza. Oh, if I can just have another hour of television. Oh, if I can just take one more vacation. If I can just have another nap. And we try to live in this comfortable mindset of like, I don't want to like be pressured into working hard. I just want to be comfortable and I want to surround myself in little comforts. But that becomes derailed almost every single day when it never satisfies. And the very next day we're looking for more comfort. Politics. The world has gone crazy the last couple years. And I think this has shown us just how much hope we've also put into our political party. You know, we live out the conservative mindset or the liberal mindset, and we think, oh, if I can just get my guy or woman into office, if I can just get this representative to represent me, if we can just get this law in place, like, then I'll feel comfortable being able to live my life how I want because that's my constitutional right. Now, yes, thank God we live in a country where we can freely worship, where we have that freedom. That is great to have a religious freedom, something the early church didn't really have, and yet, but yet they still thrived. And what I'm trying to get at here is that the hope of our constitutional right or the hope of our political party that represents us can also easily be derailed. And I think we saw that within the last two years. We saw the bickering on both sides where things weren't really getting done. We see the brokenness of this world, and despite how many laws we put into place or how many laws we repeal, we're still broken. And I'm not trying to fearmonger everybody here, but we need to consider this these false hopes will eventually become derailed. And what are we going to do when that dream shatters? You know, what are you going to do if you spent your whole life building up this beautiful house for yourself and it just burns down? Yeah, maybe you have home insurance, but do we really know if that insurance is going to cover everything? Either way, you still got to find a house. 
you know? What happens if you spent so much time being loyal to your company, just for 20 years in, they tell you they no longer need you, and they don't show loyalty back? You know, what about, you know, trying to raise this perfect-looking family, and they always have the nicest clothes and the nicest hairstyles, and you're going to make sure they all stay, like, within a radius that they come to visit at your home for the holidays? And what happens if an estrangement comes up, where there is strife and tension, that child no longer wants to see you? What if you put all of your hope into finding the perfect one, just for that marriage to end in divorce because of abuse or neglect or infidelity? Once again, I'm not here to try to use fear-mongering to scare you all. But we need to realize the end game of living with a false hope. It leads to shattered dreams and brokenness that will not fulfill us. And so our hope must rest fully in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. When we live with this mindset, the rest of the world will see. When you're at your job and all your coworkers are like talking about, oh, did you hear the latest rumors? They're looking to downsize. Oh, they might sell the company. What's that going to mean for us? And you're not participating in that because your hope's fully on Christ. They're going to take notice and they're going to ask, why aren't you worried about your job? And you can say, because I know that God will provide for my needs if I seek first the kingdom of heaven. When your neighbors are all worried about how their homes look or all these little things, and they see you not so stressed out and anxious about that stuff, they're going to take notes and they're going to ask, and you will be able to respond with where your hope is fully at. Our fellow citizens, when they're all going crazy about the news, and they see the church not playing these games... They're going to take notice that our hope is not in the Democrats or the Republicans or even the independents. Our friends will take notice. So what does this all look like? When we start to steward the resources given to us and we steward them well, whether plenty or little, how does that display our hope to the rest of the world that does not have that hope? We must keep this in mind. Because if we just start living like the rest of the world, nothing has changed. It's through living with hope fully in Christ that we can now live out the, mi the mission of the church. And what is the mission of the church? Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes the ministry of reconciliation that has been given to Christians. So starting in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This job is not for the paid staff of churches. This job is for all believers to bring about the ministry of reconciliation, to share the good news with the rest of the world. And if we don't live that out, there is no plan B, because God's plan is to use his church. And so we must share the message of reconciliation to be reconciled to God, because 
as of right now, if we are living in our sins, if we are not saved by Christ's atonement, we will endure God's wrath in the end. And so we are preaching to people to be reconciled with God so that we don't experience that wrath. We also read in Ephesians 4 about the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, Paul states, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, God has a plan for the church. He's building it up as a body. Ligaments, tendons, muscles, bones, organs, everything. And all of us play a part in that. But if we aren't living in this identity, if we're not living with this mission, we will miss out on the body of Christ being built up fully. God will bring it about, but we must submit to what he is calling the church body to do. Why? Because we need to grow more mature. As a toddler that, just, as a toddler that kind of wobbles and prattles and, you know, just kind of just is learning life, we need to grow from that into a mature stature so that we're not tossed around by the waves of society when they say, this is important. Ten years later, oh wait, no, no, strike that. This is important. And we're just constantly going back and forth like a pinball. We are called to stay grounded in the word. And in order to do that, we must have our hope fully on Christ. (laughs) So, (laughs) I know it's a lot. And I want to, if anything there is to take away from this, I want to encourage you with this. Is your hope, is my hope, fully on the grace that God has given us? If it isn't, I want to encourage you to repent of that old way of living. I want to encourage you to... Go to God and say, Lord, I have been living for the wrong things. And as a church body, let's be here for each other. You know, we don't need to, like, send people off and let them be by themselves. We need to encourage, speak truth into them. So, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as I wrap this up, I want to make two final points. We can't do this on our own. We need two things. We need God. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. We can't bear fruit for the kingdom of God if we're not abiding in Jesus. So we need God to do this. We also need each other. Hebrews 10, 23-25 You know, when talking about the need for community in the church, it states, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
the day being Jesus' return. With every day we live, it's getting closer. And so we need each other to stir each other up to love and good works, to stir each other up to attend church community. And that doesn't just mean on Sunday. We have community groups. We have events. We have different things. It doesn't even have to be like an official church event. Like you can all meet and gather with each other throughout the week, but we need each other in order to fully live out God's mission for the church. We need each other. We can't just go all John Wayne cowboy and do it alone. I know that's a sexy image in the American culture, but we need each other. So let us spur one another on to endure through this life, whether it is good, whether it is painful. Let's spur one another on to endure, and let's do it with our eyes fully on Christ in community with each other. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the book of 1 Peter. I thank you for your word to us, um, as he wrote, inspired by your Holy Spirit. Uh, I thank you that there is a promise that you are guarding us and preserving us. And I thank you for the correction and exhortation to not live for the things of this world, but to live for your kingdom and to have our eyes fully on you. God, this is difficult. Every day, it's like an onslaught of just trying to fight off the distractions, trying to fight off the busyness and cares of this world. And Lord, you have given us certain responsibilities, whether that is, you know, a, a spouse and children, whether that is, you know, um, our jobs, everything we have, our cars, our homes, every single thing. Honestly, it's all yours, and you have given it to us, not because of just the work of our hands, but you have given it to us because of your goodness. And so we must steward that well. So Lord, I pray that you would reorient our hearts and minds to not look at this stuff as stuff to be obtained and hoarded, but as resources for your kingdom. Help us to live in a way in which we do not worry and grow anxious because you have promised that you will provide for our needs. Help us to live in a way that we do not worry about losing our salvation because you have promised that it is guarded. And Lord, in all of that, you know, we still worry about, well, we still must do something. But God, you've told us, prepare our minds for actions and be sober-minded. Let us set our hope fully on you. So God, I pray that you would equip us with that. I pray that as a church body, you would continue to strengthen us and empower us, pouring out your Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit on us to be the body of Christ. We just thank you and praise you for the work you are doing and what you will be doing. And we just praise you and thank you. And we just ask for all of this today. In your son's name, amen.